Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 55, A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. You teach him good, like Willie Harris taught you. And you show him where our five generations done come to, son. Go ahead. Go ahead. We are plain people, you know. We are plain people. Yes. I work as a chauffeur, you know. Most of my life. And my wife works in people's kitchens. And so does my mother. I mean, we are plain people. Well, Mr. Younger, my you... father, my father was a laborer all of his life. Yes. And my father once, my father once almost beat a man to death because this man, he called him some kind of name, you know. And she is going to be a doctor. And we are very proud. See, see, we we come from a long line of proud people. the sixth generation, the sixth generation of my family in this country. And we have, we have all thought about your offer. 
and we've decided to move into our house because my father, he earned it brick by brick. Now we don't intend to cause no trouble or fight no causes and we're gonna try to be good neighbors. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature, and we determine whether or not it is required reading. I'm Tom Panneries, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Stella, who I could not think of a funny introduction for. I apologize, but (laughs) um, I hope you are doing well. I know it's been a kind of a crazy last few weeks for both of us, but um, I hope things are going all right. Well, mistakes have been made. Um, Right now, as of this recording, things aren't going well. I hope that that changes and I'll just be (laughs) vague about it here. And maybe on back row the Oracle, I'll talk about it. Who knows? Okay. But yeah, the, the job change. It was a job change, and it it was not what I signed up for. Really, what I signed up for was, I would say, a false a false advertisement for what this job is. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to survive. It's like my first year of teaching all over again. Mm. It almost feels like just keeping my head above water. Yeah. But here we are to talk about. Oh, and I should say. Mm-hmm. That um, them, I, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, that show that came out that has been causing all sorts of controversy on Amazon, um, right? On Amazon, yes, and deals with cer- to a certain extent, you know, something that happens in a raisin in the sun, and, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you're gonna bring up the color of law as well. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so that has been on my mind for a couple weeks now, and I actually just put out a. An hour long. It took. I, it was longer than I thought it was going to be, but an hour long little video about it. And I asked the question, "Who's this for?" And that's kind of my driving question on hmm. that. So you can hit that up if you want. Uh, there are no clips or anything. So if you're worried about being um, traumatized by the things that go on in that show, I'll talk about them, but I won't show them. But anyways, uh, yeah, life is weird. Life is weird and hard right now. But such as. I mean, that's just our journey mm-hmm. on this earth, really. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah thankfully, mine's been—it's just been exhausting. I mean, mm-hmm. it has been terrible. It's just been exhausting, and and I think we're all done. And I'm trying to be patient, and I'm trying to be upbeat about this sort of exhaustion that's at the end of the year. Um, so, um, a quick 
note to our listeners, by the way, or our regular subscribers, um, Two Truth Freaks is moving to a new website or has moved to a new website. We've carried everything over with it. Um, so if you were to go to twotruefreaks.com, you'd be able to, to find it. But um, right now, the episodes, the feeds aren't uh, – hopefully by the time this comes out, this will be have been fixed. But um, for the last couple of months, the feed's been pretty wonky because, uh, like, all the TTFRSS feeds have been all screwed up. So um, we've been releasing episodes for, like, the last month, but they haven't posted to, uh, like, iTunes or anything. And we're working on getting that technical mm. glitch Um fixed uh and and a, a good friend of ours uh uh he uh, messaged me today um and i mean he's a good friend of mine i don't know how much you you how what your status current status with uh, with alan is but um <laughs> whether or not you consider still consider him a good friend or if he has betrayed you yet again um he said when the ttf feeds get worked out i'm going to be swamped with episodes so <laughs> he's he's waiting and of course it happens with mine yeah <laughs> Irony of irony. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we're uh, we're we're moving along and things are going well, but things are going as they're going. But we're we're still doing this and we're still doing mm-hmm. the, the show and we're doing a raisin in the sun. Um, I'm gonna do the history and all that other stuff like we usually do uh, this time around. But before we do that, we always take a look at um what our history with uh with the book that we're reading is and this is a play that was produced in the late 1950s early 1960s so um stella what is your history with a raisin in the sun i'm pretty sure that well i definitely know that i read this in high school mm-hmm. and i'm pretty sure it was my 11th grade ap u.s history mm-hmm. course what no sorry it was my AP English, yeah, <laughs> 11th grade course, which was an unfortunate year because I did not care for the teacher. I, the class overall, I felt like was rather poor, mm. though I do regret some of the things that I said and did in the class <laughs> now that, that I've become a teacher. You monster. But, um, I, I know. Well, we caught her using cliff notes. Anyways, um, I could tell so many stories, but... <laughs> Yeah, so that that that's basically my history. And so I feel like now it's almost like me reading it for the first time, though, because that was such a poor experience Mm -hmm. that I knew generally what the story was. But this was like I'm number one, older, more experienced. I've now read things that bring this more into context and understanding. And uh, yeah, so I could sit with it and and better appreciate it, I think. All right. Yeah. Um, cool. Mine was I read this in college. I was never assigned this in high school. And um, I think I've said this before. When I look back at the works that I was assigned in high school, the only wor- work of literature that I read by an African-American author would have been I know why the caged bird. I know how the caged bird. I know why the caged bird sings. My Angelou. Um, I said, why or how? Um, I think it is why. Why? Okay. I'm blanking. Um, It's like we're both exhausted. Uh, So my Angelou was the only one. It was the only black author that I read in high school. And um, but I read this in college and I read it in the context of a playwriting class that in retrospect, I had no reason to take. I think I just took it to finish out my major and. 
you know, it was one of those things where I really should have focused slightly different in, in the writing area on like maybe non nonfiction prose as opposed to like trying to do fiction and then taking a writing for the stage class because um, I couldn't really write for the stage very well. Um, but we read up. But the, the problem with reading it in that class was that we read a lot of plays. So there was a lot of breadth of work, but not a lot of depth. So I remember mm -hmm. reading this. And I remember the title being important, and I remember – I don't remember much of it because I don't remember that we talked about it very much. So it wouldn't have been until I was teaching, um, and this would have been my second or third year of teaching high school. Um, I taught 11th grade. It was the only two years I taught 11th grade English. And this was in the ton of copies of this came into the book room. And I was like, oh, and I reread it. And I was like, I really want to teach this play because we did The Crucible and we did uh, Gatsby. And we, but I was like, I want something that's a little more. I love Gatsby and I love The Crucible, but I wanted something that was a little more modern, you know, um, you know, it's just a little more, uh, you know, I know it's not exactly contemporary to 2007, which is when I was teaching it, but it, I was just like, I wanted something a little bit different. Um, and that was a play that was not the crucible and was not Shakespeare. So I went for this and the kids really liked it. We had some really good discussions over whether or not he, like Walter should have taken the money at the end of the play, mm. um, what Linder represented the whole thing. You know, some of the questions that we're getting into now in this, in this episode, episode um and i taught for two years and it really uh you know so it was really uh, it was really good and a really good piece to to teach and the other novel i taught the novel i taught after this would have been uh, the things they carried because i wanted something else that was a little more mm -hmm. modern and that's one of my favorite books so yeah so i taught this for a couple of years um and uh, and i enjoyed teaching it i had not read it for a good decade or so though um since uh, I don't, or maybe a little more. I don't think I had. This is the first time I've read it in a number of years since teaching it. So, so yeah. Did you have any racist remarks coming from your, uh, from your class? For I just remember this particular story from the the eleventh grade English teacher at Covenant, where I used to teach that someone said something along the lines of, well, if, you know, black people weren't so lazy and if they would actually work, dot, 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 and she got really worked up over it. And so I wondered, I mean, you had such a great experience. Were there any knee jerk things like that uh, talking about brother mm, and his character? No, from what I remember, um, I want to say that this is when I was teaching up in um, uh the the Fredericksburg Virginia area so it was not when I was teaching around here and I had a very good mix of um, black and white students in the class um, so they're really I, I I don't think I heard one disparaging remark you know at all um, from anybody uh, not in the way that when I was teaching night I at least two or three years in a row had to kick a student out of class because he was saying anti-Semitic remarks. Mm. So, and that was in the, the district I used to teach in, um, just North of, of where we live in Charlottesville. So, um, yes, yeah, so no, thank th thankfully I, I didn't. And we actually, I don't think we got too far into the whole idea of systemic racism 
and some of the background. I, I tried to get some of the background of the suburbs and stuff in, um, but even I didn't know a lot about it back then, you know. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, so I, I, I had I been teaching it now, I probably would have been able to go a little deeper with that. But no, I was I was fortunate to have a very like just. Um, even if they weren't that enlightened about anything and were just kind of, you know, passive about the stuff, there was nobody who was actively, uh, you know, saying anything that was racist or offensive. Mm. That's lovely to hear. It is. It's it's refreshing. It shouldn't be refreshing, but it's refreshing. I know. Isn't that the problem? Oh, gosh. But I guess this goes back to, I think... You, you defended or tried to highlight students and, you know, this upcoming generation of, of young adults when we did uh, Curious, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time. Yes, I think that, so. They, they were more respectful and caring of people that have uh, disabilities. Yeah. Wasn't it that? Yeah, because I mentioned, I think, I'd have to go back and re-listen to what I said, but I want to say, and this is off the top of my head, so if I said something differently, I apologize, that I remember my generation, there were a lot of people who I went to high school with who'd like to make fun of um, mentally disabled mm-hmm. people. They would use a certain word that began with R. Um. And uh, I don't really see any of that where I am now, um, and I, I haven't seen it. And so it's I think this generation, and I think in in many ways, talking to the generation that I teach now, I do you know I I do come across students who are. Um, who who have not you know who who do get who do get their 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 um their um haunches up is that the term um who get on their haunches when when they when they because they feel because they have more uh they have more beliefs that do kind of side with the kind of white part of the conflict in this um and and but they seem to be more willing to have a civil conversation about it um at least in the experience i've had so far as opposed to students i've had in the past who would be just like flat out kkk about it mm-hmm. so um and and you know i think we got a long way to go uh but you know and i know that in in talking to um the students of color who i teach whether that be black or latinx or whoever um i know they they still feel very uncomfortable in, in a number of spaces within school. But I do my best to <laughs> make them as comfortable as possible, uh, whether, you know, and, and I feel like I'm still working on it. So, but um, I, I do see, I do see them more, I do see a lot of them feeling a little more um, confident in being able to just kind of share their voice as opposed to just kind of like either, uh, it's, it's as opposed to just kind of like feeling that they have to, have to keep their mouth shut. So it's 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 I think it's on a, a positive trend, but it's 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 nowhere near where it needs to be. Yeah, I, I hope. I mean, that's that's what we have to do, really, is hope and mm-hmm. and teach teacher. I mean, that's the I think one of the unspoken <laughs> yeah. 
duties, job duties of an educator is that you're not only educating in regards to your subject matter, but I think you're educating how to become like a decent human being mm-hmm. and, and add to the world in some sort of productive and, and loving way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And the some of the history behind this play and some of the history that this play digs into is kind of my jam. It's like post-war 20th century American history is like what I love. So, you know, I'm I I was really you know I, I probably pulled too much background for this, so I'm going to try to not get too deep. But in the background section, I will list a few sources that people might want to check out for further reading. So let me go ahead and and uh, and go through this now. The source for her bio and for a couple of these things I did get from Wikipedia, and I'm going to kind of skim through this. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, who is our playwright, was born in Chicago in 1930. She was the youngest of four children born to Carl Augustus Hansberry, who was a successful real estate broker, and Nanny Louise Perry or Hansberry, who was a driving school teacher and ward committee woman. Her father, uh, and I'll get to the court case in a moment, but her father was a supporter of the Urban League and the NAACP. Both of them were actors were active in um, the Chicago Republican Party, which is ironic considering the stance of the Republican Party today. But we have to remember that this was before the 1964 and 1968 elections, and that is when the when the platform of the Republican Party really did flip. So keep that in mind when when I say they were Republicans. Um, he died in 1946 when Lorraine was 15 years old. She later said American racism helped kill him. But they were routinely visited by prominent black people, including W.B. Dubois, Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson, Duke Ellington, and Jesse Owens. Um, her brother founded the African Civilization Section of the History Department at Howard and uh, she says that she was taught above all there were two things which were never to betray, be betrayed, the family and the race. Her family was involved in a famous court case that dealt with the issue of restrictive covenants in housing. Mm-hmm. Now, covenants in housing were this basically this agreement that a subdivision or housing development would have. And very often what they were were signed agreements that the, that they would not allow uh, anybody but white people to move to that particular subdivision. And this is a, this is a, a lot of this is, uh, these things and covenants and, um, redlining where a literal red line was drawn on the map of like, you know, this is like the white side of town. This is the, the black side of town. And I'm, I'm simplifying for brevity here. Um, if you, if you've read, and I know you've read, but if our audience has read Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, um, really goes into the history of this, and it's, it's outstanding. Um, so they sued uh, on the basis of this covenant. Um, they uh, Hansberry versus Hansberry v. Lee is the name of the case. It is is a pretty well known case, and uh, not just because it was her her parents, but um, it was a racially restrictive covenant that barred African Americans from purchasing or leasing land in the Washington Park subdivision of Chicago's Woodlawn neighborhood. Um, there was a prior class action suit. The covenant had been held, um, and uh, the plaintiff was her father. And uh, they um, 
they had said, you know, the court had originally said that the, they could not uh, contest the covenant because it had already been deemed valid by the courts in the prior lawsuit. Uh, her parents had, you know, attempted to move in there. The United States Supreme Court, though, ruled that since some of the neighborhood landowners, 46% of them actually uh, did not support the restrictive covenant, the decision that the covenant was valid didn't apply to all the members. In other words, you couldn't let 54% of landowners who had supported the restrictive covenant represent the interest of the 46 who were against it. And um, they held that the covenant could be contested in court. This would eventually lead to another case, um, Shelley versus Kramer from 1948. This did rule that racially restrictive covenants were unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment and therefore could not be enforced. So, yeah, so that was just it's just again, it's uh, and and this, this ties into like some of the stuff that inspired what was going on in A Raisin in the Sun as we'll get into the plot. Um, and uh, the play itself is mentioned in The Color of Law regarding a case that went to the Missouri Appeals Court in 1959. Um, this was an African-American couple had attempted to build a home in the white suburb of St. Louis named Crevecourt. Um, permits had been approved, work had begun, and the town discovered that the purchasers were African-American. And I'm quoting from the book here, by the way. A hastily organized citizens committee then raised con- contributions to purchase the property. White property owner groups frequently attempted this play when faced with integration, and this, that's what is hap- what happens as part of the plot in A Raisin in the Sun. As in the Hansberry drama, the Crevcore couple in Missouri refused the author. Um, in this case, the, the real-life case, the city condemned the property. So they they use their pull with the city, and this is all this is all over the place throughout the United States, especially in burgeoning suburbs post-war. Uh, the Color of Law goes into some really good detail about how the racism behind the um, distribution of funds concerning G- the GI Bill and why a lot of white GIs were able to settle into suburbs, particularly like Levittown on Long Island, where, uh, you know, Mr. Levitt was did not want African-Americans in his uh, subdivision. And yeah, so, so this this really does get at the heart of a lot of that. Um, I'll get to I'll, I'll expand on that in a little bit. I want to get back into my bio of, of Hansberry because it kind of went off topic a little bit. But um, she has a number of notable relatives. Uh director and playwright Shawnee Perry, whose eldest child is named after her. Her grandniece is actress Tay Hansberry. Her cousin is the flutist, percussionist, and composer Aldridge Hansberry. And she is... I believe it's flautist. Flautist, sorry. <laughs> um, she is the godmother... She was the godmother to Nina Simone's daughter, Lisa. And she graduated... Uh, from uh, Angwood High School in uh, Chicago in 1948. She attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She became immediately politically active with the Communist Party in uh, USA and integrated a dormitory. And her classmate Bob Teague said he remembered her as, quote, the only girl I knew who could whip together a fresh picket sign with her own hands at a moment's notice for any cause or occasion. So she was a very and and there's like a whole her bio on Wikipedia just has an enormous amount of her accomplishments as an activist through the 40s and the 50s, which is outstanding. And it's it's one of those it's it's one of those bios that you look at this person who is a writer and you're like, this is amazing. You know, I mean, I just didn't know all of this about her. Um, she was on the staff of the black newspaper um, f- 
Freedom, with which was published by Paul Robeson. She worked with W. E. B. Du Bois on the same um, on the same publication. Um, she wrote for it. Uh, she wrote in support of the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya, and then uh, in 1953, married Robert uh, Nemiroff, who wrote the introduction for our edition of A Raisin mm-hmm. in the Sun. He is a Jewish publisher, songwriter, and political activist as well. They uh, separated in 1957 and divorced in 1962, but they did they have a professional relationship that lasted until Hansberry's death. And they were both um, active in protesting, et cetera. For instance, they protested the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Um, and he is the essentially the executor of her or the keeper of her estate. So um, she was just this is also very interesting. She was a closeted lesbian uh, before her marriage. She'd written in her personal notebooks about her attraction to women uh, in 1957, around the time she separated from Nemirov. Uh, she um, contacted the daughters of Bilitis or Bilitis, uh, the San Francisco-based lesbian rights organization, contributing two letters to their magazine, and um, pointing to these letters as evidence some gay and lesbian writers credited Hansbury as having been involved with the homophile movement, or at least having been an advocate for gay rights. Although that's been disputed by other people as well, but they, she, like I said, her, they did, she did divorce um, her husband, but unfortunately died of pancreatic cancer very young. She was 34. She died on January 12, mm. 1965. And James Baldwin uh, believed, quote, it is not at all far fetched to suspect that what she saw contributed to the strain which killed her. For the effort to which Lorraine was dedicated is more than enough to kill a man. Her funeral was held in Harlem on June, January 15, 1965. Paul Robeson, SNCC organizer James Foreman gave eulogies. The presiding minister recited messages from Baldwin and Martin Luther King Jr., which read her creative ability and profound grasp of the deep social issues confronting the world today will remain an inspiration for generations yet unborn. So she was a well-respected playwright. And this is one of the first real notable Broadway productions written, created by a black woman starring a mostly black cast. There's only one white character in the whole thing. Now, this this play, play debuted in 1959. That is revolutionary for its time. Some production notes about the play. Uh, with a cast in which all but one character is black, a Raisin in the Sun was considered a risky investment. It took over a year for Philip Rose, who was the producer, to raise money to launch it. And there were some different there were some differences over how it should be focused. Should it be focused on Mama or should it be focused on Walter? It, the role of Walter the Younger was originated by the legendary actor Sidney yeah. Poitier, um, with Ruby D, another legendary actor, uh, playing Ruth Younger. Um, and we have uh, this the original cast. Uh, Ivan Dixon was Joseph Asagai, Lonnie Elder the Third, Bobo, um, John Fielder played Carl Blinder, and I put Piglet as a racist because I always love pointing that out. If you ever watch the original film version of A Raisin in the Sun from 1961 that takes this cast and puts it on film, you will recognize the voice of. Carl Lindner, the white man who tries to buy out the family as the voice of Piglet from the Winnie the Pooh cartoons. Oh, golly. Yeah. Lewis Scott. What a connection. Yes. I think that's probably some sort of fallacy. <laughs> no, it actually, it's the same actor, but... Um, 
Oh yeah, but I mean, I like know, making I'm just one of the connections I'm, to yeah, the other crazy. That that's called me being a smartass. Um, so <laughs> Lewis, Lewis Gossett, Lewis Gossett Jr. Um, is George Murchison, Claudia McNeil, Lena Younger. Uh, Diana Sands was beneath uh, Glenn Truman was Travis Ed Hall was a moving man and Douglas Turner was another moving man and Ozzie Davis another very famous actor later took over the uh, Walter Lee Younger role um, and Francis Williams played Lena Younger Hansberry did not expected to be perf- to be successful it received mixed reviews from preview audiences um, and it won popular critical acclaim though um but it there were a lot of reviewers that argued about whether or not the play was universal or particular to black experience and i have a couple of questions about that that came up in nimeroff's introduction um a raisin in the sun was the first play by a black woman to be produced on broadway as well as the first with a black director in 1960 it was nominated for four tony awards best play best actor in a play city portier best actress claudia mcneil and best direction lloyd richards it has been revived a number of times over the years with the most recent broadway revival being 2014 with denzel washington as Mm -hmm. walter younger and i could totally see that Film adaptations. 1961, the feature film I already mentioned, uh, directed by Daniel Petrie. It, in 2005, it was selected for preservation in the, in the U.S. Um, uh, by the Library of Congress as being culturally, uh, for the National Film Registry, culturally, historically, aesthetically significant. It's a really good pro, uh, production. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, the, the, 1989, apparently this was really good, actually, and, and I, I it's hard to find somewhere, so if I can ever find it, I will watch it. But Bill Duke, who... Um, who I first remember from like Schwarzenegger movies because he's in Commando and Predator, but he was a he was a director, uh, directed a number of movies, especially in the nineties, like Sister Act and and some other movies. Um, he directed this uh, an edition of this with Danny Glover as Walter and Esther Raleigh as Mama. And then there's a 2008 TV movie starring the cast of a 2004 Broadway revival. Felicia Rashad plays Mama, and of all the people to play Walter, and I've heard he's actually pretty good. Sean Puffy Combs. Yeah, Diddy. Now, what's also interesting is that there were actually a couple of sequels and follow-ups that sometimes are referred to as the Raisin Cycle, not written by Hansberry. Um, She wrote a few others, uh, a few other works, by the way. This is not her only work. Um, The only other work I recognized was the work called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which I would like to... um, look up and read but she also wrote uh the sign in sydney bursting's windows the drinking gourd uh to be ungifted black lady blanc what are what use our flowers and the movement which are listed on the inside cover of uh or inside front page of raisin but um there are two other two other kind of spin-off slash sequel plays um in 2010 bruce norris wrote a play called clyburn park it depicts the white family that sold the house to the youngers. The first act takes place just before the events of A Race in the Sun involving the selling of the house to the black family. The second act takes place 50 years later as a white family is trying to move in because the neighborhood is gentrifying. Um, I've actually read that. It's not half bad. Um, it, it, the, the part about 
where the family like the what is what has happened over the course of the 50 years is that the youngers of the family that starts to like revolutionize the neighborhood and by the time you hit like 2010 it's mostly an african-american neighborhood and white people are starting to move in because of gentrification and it's a really good commentary on gentrification um it's a little awkward in places or, or a little bit like um, not awkward in terms of uncomfortable, but awkward in terms of the way it's written. But but overall, it, it won a couple of awards. And then um, the 2013 play by Kwame Kwe Arma, and I apologize if I butchered that name, um, entitled Beneath's Place follows Benita after she leaves with Asagai to Nigeria and instead of becoming a doctor, becomes the dean of social sciences at a respected unnamed California university. Um, and the Kwayam Arma referred to them as the Raisin Cycle, and they were produced together by Baltimore Center Stage in the 2012-2013 season. So that's some history of the play. But yeah, so I, I wanted to just some other reading to, to follow up on, because again, um, there's like, we could do a whole podcast ourselves just on the historical context of the play. Mm-hmm. Because you have... Um, there is other reading in terms of uh, thematic things, such, um, I, you know, of course, you want to recommend that somebody you should read, and, and in most editions, it's reprinted uh, the poem Harlem or A Dream Deferred by Langston Hughes, because that's where the title of the play comes from. I would also recommend this great Gwendolyn Brooks poem from 1963 called Kitchenette Building which is um, very much the same sort of setting. I use it in AP Lit. Uh, Alice Walker has a story called Everyday Use, and that is a really good piece of almost like a, another side of the whole, of, of the generational conflict between like what Benita is, is doing in this, in this thing with, with looking at her, her heritage as, as far as Africa and Joseph Hasegai, and then her, um, and then, and then mama with, you know, where, where she's coming from, et cetera. Um, and it's a little more, uh, there's a little bit more of a conflict there, but it's a really, really good piece about this, this quilt that this woman has two daughters and one of them is, you know, she, she's going to give the quilt to these two daughter, one of the two daughters, and one of them is much more like her. And the other one is much more like, you know, um, I'm going to, uh, is, you know, there's kind of that conflict of like, you know, where your heritage stands and, and what have you. Um, it's, but it's, it's a very, very good piece by, by Walker, and I'm not doing it justice by my babbling here. So, um, The Color of Law, which we already mentioned, um, it really mm-hmm. goes into the details about um, the history of the suburbs and, and how um, laws were written to protect to keep black people out of the suburbs, whether or not they were allowing people to charge more for houses, they were, or um, or were protecting actions by organizations like the Klan, uh, zoning people out of the stuff, redlining covenants, and those sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. You seem to enjoy that book too. I did. I learned a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that I wasn't really aware of had been going on and especially the government's hand in everything and and his main thesis is basically that the government it wasn't just like these random incidents that had nothing to do with the government but the government was actually perpetuating a lot of this stuff both state as well as federal um and it was also really shocking because i think 
we can bring this up now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember we were going to talk about this before. In high school history, and I don't know how much it has changed, but my high school history, some of these things go by in a blur. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you talk about FDR and the New Deal, but I had no idea that actually, like, black Americans were, let's just say, victimized by many portions of the New Deal and, and some of those things that came out of there. And it's not really talked about. And Rothstein, at one point, is like at the end of that book, he actually talks about and uses the primary text that is just throughout schools in American history. Mm-hmm. And there are just maybe two sentences. I don't have the book with me, but they use the passive voice. Like it's like no one's owning it. What had happened was that black Americans were something, some by blah, blah, you know. So it's just really interesting. And that's something that I hope changes. Like we need more education on that because not everyone is going to go out and read the color of law. So I wonder what's being done in schools and whether that has changed from when I was in high school because I had no idea. So this was, yeah, it was really good to to read uh, about that. And, you know, like any historical text like this, you know, it's not like the most, woo, you know, I'm really, yeah. it's a page turner. Like it was a page turner in the sense of I'm really interested, but also it's like you're dealing with a lot of facts. So I think you just have to be really intentional about seeking out this type of material. So, yeah, I highly recommend The Core of Law. It really changed my thinking and, and helped me grow. Yeah, it, it is a little academic in places, so it does get a little yeah. dry, but it is it is a fascinating read. And, and I found the pass. I have the book in front of me, so I found the passage you were looking for, you were talking about. So I'm going to read it. One of the Please? one of the most commonly used American history textbooks is The Americans Reconstruction to the 21st Century. A thousand-page volume published by Holt McDougall, a division of the publishing giant Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It lists several well-respected professors as authors and editors. The 2012 edition has this to say about residential segregation in the North. Quote, African Americans found themselves forced into segregated neighborhoods. That's it. One passive voice sentence. No suggestion of who might have done the forcing or how it was implemented. And, uh, yeah, so and I think that's really important. I'm glad you brought that point up because there's two things at work here. One, bre- the whole breadth, not depth thing of an American history course in the classic sense that you and I grew up with. And hopefully I- I've seen some tweaks and changes to the curriculum that are starting to correct this, which is awesome. But it has always been like we were saying about the Holocaust a couple of episodes ago, certain things mm-hmm. are like answers on a test and you never really understand what like I think it was I brought it up in the context of the Night of Broken Glass or Crystal Knocked. I, you know, I, it wasn't until I actually researched that a little bit that I understood what was going on. It was just, oh, this like it was like this is this and boom. And so that's part of the problem. But the other part of the problem is that the whitewashing, like you said, the whitewashing of history. And like you were saying there, it's like no idea of who did this. And then what that contributes to is the idea that you let the government off the hook by having it like that, because then you can paint mm-hmm. the picture of the angry white racist mob who are the exception to the rule. You know, not that there weren't the Klan and not that there weren't like, you know, I'm not saying I don't want to belittle anybody who went through any sort of real racial violence because there were people who were like, even there are, there are things in this book. There were people whose houses were like bombed, you know, 
but he does get to the systemic aspect of it. And I didn't know the phrase systemic racism until I was well into my 30s. You know, mm-hmm. and and because I never learned any of that, and and it's it's brushed over. To wit, another book that I would recommend is the book Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, which does exactly this on a full book scale. Looks at American history textbooks and talks about how much they get wrong, or how much they mm. brush over. It's really really good, um, and it's a good companion to say like. Uh, Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States or Ibram X. Kendi's um, Stamp from the Beginning, which which are both very, very good. And, and you know, and I, and I say this as somebody who has the privilege of having benefited from the suburbs because my grandfather returned from World War II. He was a uh, he was a tail gunner on a B-17 and um, came back to Brooklyn And they ran a grocery store in Brooklyn, but Brooklyn started to get um, too crowded. And they also got the GI Bill and they bought a house in New Hyde Park and New Hyde Park, New York. It was one of those neighborhoods where every other house was the same house in the block. Like, in fact, my grandmother's sister bought the house across the street. It was the same exact house. And uh, and so they directly benefited from the privilege that came to white Americans after the war, especially the ones who benefited, you know, who were, who were the GIs. Now they earned, I think they rightfully earned that, but the government denied a lot of it to African American soldiers. And that's the issue. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not an undeserved benefit that the troops got. It's the fact that it was unequal in terms of the distribution you know then and and also that that money was then used to buy houses in areas where the people who were developing the houses would not let black people live and that's a problem that um was caused by the developers but also by um by the people in power um i'm not from chicago i'm from new york um, you know, I'm from Long Island and uh, a great book and it is a tome. So you gotta, you gotta have the, you gotta have the endurance to endure the power broker by Robert Caro, but it is the power broker, Robert Caro and the, uh, Robert Moses in the fall of New York. And if you want any name in the development of cities and suburbs, you're gonna hit Robert Moses. I mean, the man's influence stretched far and wide. And, um, one of the one of the famous stories was that you know one of the things he did in building superhighways and things in and around New York City was he bulldozed his way through various neighborhoods and a lot of them were were poorer neighborhoods and many of them were um you know and they now t- to be fair a lot of them also had poor white people so he was he was indiscriminate and like if he if he wanted a highway to go through your neighborhood he was going to bulldoze through your neighborhood and New York City essentially allowed him to do that but he also had a real disdain for black people he just he was you know he was an outright racist and uh you know so he he was he evicted um many of them from um their homes as he was trying to raise neighborhoods and things like that and he really didn't care for instance so like he was evicting people in the 1950s to a excessive rate black and puerto rican people were evicted way more than white people and um the most famous thing about him on long island was that he built these parkways and these parkways are gorgeous but they're passenger car only because he made he he had them design and build the bridges so that they were too low for buses to pass 
And therefore, buses could not reach Jones Beach, which is the huge state park out on Long I- on, on the Barrier Beach off Long Island. That is like one of the biggest beaches in the state. And um, the Long Island Railroad wouldn't get out there. Why? He did not want black people on his beaches. And this is a legacy I didn't know until I started working at – I worked at Robert Moses State Park on Long Island, um, which is on the west end of Fire Island. Um, when I was in college, I was a I was a maintenance worker. But um, I didn't know that until, like, somebody – we were talking about it. They were talking about Bobby, Bob Moses. They were like, oh, yeah, this is all about him. But, like, you know, if I look up – and there's a lot in this book about, you know, his, his, uh, his racism um, and it's under – just I'm looking at the, the index and I had to actually look up and per- – pardon the word but the book was written in the early 1970s so the word negro is used because it was still it was just about to fade out of out of common usage um but you know so but you have you know discouraged at jones beach in eviction of ghettos of um in integrated neighborhoods lack of public works for mixing with whites discouraged Robert Moses prejudices against unions prejudice against see also Harlem. So the idea that Moses like perpetuated the systemic racism to the benefit of his power and the power of other white people uh, is important through uh, the power broker. I would recommend just another novel. I would recommend the hate you give Um, because I think it deals with some of the issues like, you know, it's, it's obviously more contemporary, but like some of the issues that, in some way you see here, you see echoed in the hate you give, um, you know, and especially since you have a black family that is in, that is in the, in the neighborhood where there are gangs and things like that. But also there's a black family, like the family of the, one of the main characters is in the suburbs. And so you have a conflict there, uh, which is really interesting. And then the last thing I'm going to recommend, and I apologize, this, this section has gone like really, really long, but, but like this, you can tell that. Gonna be up for hours. You can tell that I totally nerded out on this. I'm like, oh, this is so like I could do my own podcast on the history of the suburbs and stuff. But uh, I will link to this in the show notes. There is a Newsday article from about 2019. Now Newsday is the Long Island newspaper, and it is a, an investigative article about the practice of real estate agents on Long Island who were steering white families toward predominantly white neighborhoods and black and Latinx families or Latinx families away from white neighborhoods and doing it in a way that skirted legality. Like they were able to, it's completely unethical. They were technically not doing anything illegal. Like I don't think they could actually be accused of anything illegal so they were doing it within the confines of the law but they're this but it's just a way of how quietly the segregation that was fought against and strides were made against still exists and is still enforced but maybe not by the government per se by other uh, other entities and i know the new jim crow is another book you could talk about here as well so yeah, that has come into the yeah. library for me, so that's going to be my <laughs> next book. Yeah, it's on my it's on my reading list too. So I haven't, I haven't read it yet, so I really can't speak to it. But I know that the idea that like you know, the the segregation that exists in today's society is the same, if not worse, in many places than it was back in mm-hmm. 1959 when Hansberry wrote this. So it's just speaking to the relevance of the play. Um, and, yeah. and how it still echoes today. So um, so yeah, it's a timeless. Yeah, play. so I will link to. Um, those other sources in the show notes for anybody who is interested in taking a look at them uh, or, or, or what have you. So, 
All right. Anything else to add before I get to the plot synopsis? Oof. No. <laughs> Sorry. I know that was a lot. No, no. No, I think you, you covered it okay, well. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, thank you. I just, like I said, I was like, I just, I got further and further into this and I was just like, oh, this is just um, more and more. And it's like, you know, it's, I, I could, I could do, I, I could read, read more on it and stuff like that. So. But you feel like, do you think there's layers of enjoyment? Maybe the better word is appreciation mm-hmm. because this was certainly, I don't think, I can't remember, you know, it was a bad course, as I said before, much context being given surrounding this, like real life, real time mm. context before reading yeah. this. So do you think like people can still pick it up, read it and appreciate it? But if you go outside of this and start looking at some of these materials that you mentioned, then you'll have a a better appreciation for it i think that's exactly um i think that's you're exactly right there and that's a great way to put it i also think that understanding this gives you a better appreciation in the objective sense for the history of suburban america and maybe that's just coming from me who is a product of suburban america you know I, i grew up on the south shore of long island in the burbs so um a lot of the uh, and and it's very possible to view that whole existence through just a white lens, and which I did for many many years. So being able to read this and then being able to read these other works like really put a lot of this into perspective and you know just recognize my own personal privilege. And honestly, just to bring up a book that we've already covered on this show um, badly, but we covered it um, was the Between the World and Me, and I bring it up because of the portion toward the back end of it, which is the description of, um, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I apologize, uh, a friend of his, or, or the, the the person who was shot by a cop oh, in like Prince. Prince, yeah, in 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 Virginia, in Northern Virginia, Jones, yes, I believe it? so, and and yeah. so I think that particular part, especially of um, of the Between the World and Me, speaks to some of the things that we see in you know in kind of starting with the reason of the sun into the color of law and 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 the hate you give and stuff like that, like you know the idea of the lack of safety within these spaces that a lot of um, people of color feel. And we've seen it time and again over the last, well, we've seen it time and again over the last couple of decades, but especially in the last decade or so of like, you know, where you have um, the fact that you are essentially just out and about being doing whatever you are and whether it is uh, a, a random person or it is an, a, a law enforcement officer, um, your life is put in danger just by being, you know, being out and, and uh, in, in a, in a, and very often, you know, these, these do sometimes happen in suburb, very often in suburban neighborhoods. Um, some people have died and, and this is, you know, I think, I think it, it, it all comes into like one, like add that to the, add that to the reading pile and add that to the topics that you can pursue of like, you know, why that, why Mm -hmm. that story and between the world and me that does connect back to what Lindner is doing in this play, you know, it's much more violent, of course, but again, it's Mm -hmm. using the structures of government to oppress which is you know what the color of law does and stuff you know 
So, but in this case, it's done in a in a much more uh, direct and and violent and deadly way, as opposed to simply um, rezoning things and uh, and and offering bribes and stuff like that. Okay, so shall I get to the plot? I think it's okay. time. All right, so A Raisin in the Sun takes place on the south side of Chicago in the crowded apartment home of the Youngers, a black family who consists of three generations, Mama, her grown children, Walter Jr. and Benita, and Walter's wife, Ruth, and their son, Travis. The play is set entirely within the confines of the Younger house, or apartment, and over several days, the plot itself is uh, comprised of three acts. The catalyst for the plot is that the patriarch of the family, Walter Lee Younger Sr., has recently passed away. Mama is coming into the $10,000 payout from his life insurance. The house is abuzz with the news that the insurance check is coming, especially Walter Jr., who is trying to convince Mama to give him the money so that he and his two friends, Willie and Bobo, can open up a liquor store. She rejects the idea. Uh, this angers Walter, who believes that he's entitled to at least some share of that money. Meanwhile, Ruth and Benita are dealing with their own issues. Ruth, as we discover in Act 1, is pregnant, something she's been keeping a secret until she passes out while she does her chores. She later makes an appointment with the doctor to inquire into an abortion, but by the play's end, it's obvious she's going to keep the baby, especially after the secret about her pregnancy is out. I should note, too, just for historical context, this would have been an under-the-table procedure because, um, it, yeah. although I, we'd have to look up the history of abortion law in the country, I know it was not federally legal in, until 1972 or 73 when Roe v. Wade uh, came about, but it may have been a different thing state to state. So, But let's just say it was... Probably it might have been shady. Um, all right, so back into the plot synopsis. As for Benita, she is a college student who has aspirations of becoming a doctor and is caught between the admiration of two men. We have George Murchison, who is the son of a wealthy business owner and is her current boyfriend, and then Joseph Asagai, a fellow student who is from Nigeria. While George courts Benita using a fair amount of sophistication, such as taking her to plays and nice restaurants, Joseph teaches the her about her African roots and views her own appearance and culture as, quote, assimilationist. Her reaction to this is to accept his gifts of traditional Nigerian dresses, but to also cut her hair in a way that looks natural. And Nemirov, uh, in his introduction, by the way, points out that it would be maybe half a decade to a, more of a decade later that the more natural, as we would come to know it, the Afro hairstyle would come mm -hmm. into vogue. But by 1958, 1959, um, black women were still, and black women still do a lot of them do straighten their hair. But um, but the natural look was not something that was was very common among uh, black women in, in 1959. So that's why it's so shocking in that scene. By the end of the play, Joseph has proposed that she accompany her to Nigeria, where she can practice medicine. Because she wants to go to med school. 
Um, Mama takes $3,500 of the money and she puts a down payment on a house in Clyburn Park, which is an all-white neighborhood in the suburbs. Almost immediately after she does this, the family is visited by Carl Lindner, the head of the Clyburn Park Improvement Association, which is more or less an HOA. Uh, you know, it is. It's an HOA. Um, Lindner is polite, but tells the youngers that the residents of the neighborhood do not want the family moving in and are ready to pay for more than what their house is worth for them to go away. Insulted, the family rejects the offer. Then Mama gives the remaining $6,500 to Walter telling him to put 3000 of it into a savings account for Benita and the rest into a checking account for himself and Ruth, saying that any money that he makes off of that remaining 3500 would be his. Instead, he takes all of it and gives it to Willie, who is supposed to, quote, spread it around in Springfield, which is the state capital of Illinois, and that's basically offering a bribes to grease the wheels in order to get the liquor licenses and other permits they need to open the liquor store. However, Bobo shows up at the apartment at one point to tell Walter that when it came time for him to meet Willie at the train station to head to Springfield, Willie didn't show because Willie split with their money. This devastates the family. Mama begins beating Walter about the head and the rest of them are outwardly angry. An hour later, Walter leaves the house and calls Lindner with the intention of taking the buyout. However, when Lindner shows up and Walter is forced to talk to him in front of the entire family, including Travis, he gets the strength to strongly tell Lindner that the family is going to reject the offer and will be moving to Clyburn Park. Lindner leaves with a quote, I sure you people know what you're getting into. <laughs> and the phrase you people is he uses that phrase several times. And mm -hmm. it's a really good, subtle use of like it, it's not a, it, it's subtle in that sense of you get the racism tinged through it without him using any actual racial epithets. And it's a really, really good way of scripting that that scene. And uh, I sure hope you people know what you're getting to. And the family packs up and they leave the apartment ready to move into their new house. So um, we've done the history. We've done the plot. Now I can ask you some questions that maybe I'll stop talking because people are sick of hearing my voice. Stella, did you like this? I sure did, Tom. There's not much to really mm -hmm. qualify why I like it. But, uh, yes, I enjoyed it. I don't recall if I liked it when I read it in high school, but I certainly enjoyed it here, and I was looking forward to it, and I was happy that you chose it for our cool. show. Thank you. No, I love this play, too. I think it's one of my favorite plays, um, and for a wow. few reasons, um, one of them being that when I did teach it, I did get a couple of students who were like, wow, I didn't know a play could be this entertaining, because, again, their experience had been Shakespeare. And, mm -hmm. you know, and nothing against, well, okay, I have a lot of things against Romeo and Juliet, but um, nothing against Caesar, which is the other play that we read. We both, <laughs> you tried to pull yeah, that we, lie off. That we scary. both liked Caesar, but at the same time, I can see how high school students might get kind of bored with Caesar. So um, by the time they hit me, they would have had, they, we did the Crucible, but like I said, we did this. And they were like, wow, this is just, it was, it's electric in the way that it is. It, it, it comes across in many places and they can really see it and understand it and um it feels uh, there's an authenticity to this 
and it feels that it is um i think it's well written and well staged and i i really love the way it is both a history lesson but holds up and makes a commentary on current society so um so i guess i'll start us off so the poem in the beginning is um which is where we get the title is called harlem it is by langston hughes and i will read it because it's right here it's not a very long poem (sighs) what happens to a dream deferred does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode so that's the poem that's quoted at the beginning of the play um, of course that's where the title is taken from and i would if i were teaching this in class i'd go for a question about this reference um the 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 whole the whole reason that she put the the title of the play as this and and, and quote of the Hughes poem, where we do see dreams deferred in the where do we see dreams deferred in the play? Do any of them explode? Because this play is by and large about dreams. Yeah, I would say that practically every character has their mm-hmm. dreams deferred, and. With the exception of Travis, though, because disappointment in dreams and and their deferment have almost been like, what, intergeneration or I guess subsequent generations, Mm -hmm. you know, starting from the mother, they going to Walter Lee. And then, you know, that I feel like when he grows up, there's going to be something with him because it just seems like, unfortunately, this family is caught up in, in unfortunate circumstances and it's hard to get out of it. So with the mother, Lena, um, I think hers is really tied to her husband and she talked previously about, you know, desiring to actually have a house and a home, have a garden like that. The plant is, is always with her. And I feel like really symbolic of just getting out of this space and being somewhere and moving up quite literally, and unfortunately, you know, that doesn't happen. And then you have Benita, who has dr- aspirations of being a doctor, and th- and that gets deferred. Though to a certain extent, there's hope mm-hmm. there with Asagai. 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 I remember that he he pronounces yes. it. <laughs> I was like, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I for went that. back and I, I wrote it out that way. <laughs> yeah, Asagai. And did I just say it no, wrong you said again? It right. Okay. Whew. Okay. So yeah, giving her that that hope of coming over to Nigeria mm-hmm. and then potentially, you know, getting into medical practice there. With Ruth, I think it's so tied to Walter Lee. Um, that one, yeah, that one's harder for me to explain, and a lot of it I feel like is almost that relationship and that breaking down. So perhaps she had romantic notions that how they began their relationship it would continue but you Mm -hmm. see how it it starts to fray and it really does break apart but i think at the end it comes back together and then really the the big moment with everything i think the explosion really happens with with walter Mm -hmm. this entire time he is he's got these grand ideas 
and he really wants to get out of this station that he's been put in and he finally has the financial investment and also the trust of his mother and I don't know why he gave it to this man. I'm just thinking, man, you guys should have all held on to your pieces of money before you met up. But they trusted Willie. And, yeah, that was it. And, unfortunately, with his dream being destroyed, he also destroyed the whole family's dream as well as individuals. So I'd say that would be the explosion. But, again, with all of these, even though – there are huge negative aspects. There are glimmers of hope because I think he retains his pride as a man and as a father and a son, specifically as a son and remembering his own father with, with how he deals with that gentleman at the end, the HOA representative. So that would be my answer. I, I, think, I think it's a really good answer. I would. What I would do, though, is I'd, I'd add a couple of things. Like with Ruth. Um, <laughs> yes, Mr. Panner. Yeah, so, <laughs> Thank you. With Ruth, um, I would say that her dreams are deferred by the fact that she is running that house. She is doing the emotional okay. labor of which is the, which again, which speaks to maybe not maybe not just the racial aspect of this, but the gender aspect of this. The 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 fact that women, um, by and large, in households, especially from the 1950s even to now put a lot of unpaid labor, emotional labor into a family. She's always doing chores in this play. She's always, she, she, and she is always, and then, and then her occupation is as a, is as a, as a maid, as a house cleaner. So she's always, so she's the financial backing of yes. the family as well. And so is Lena. Yeah, too, so, yeah. So the, the women in this play, Ruth especially is so in the moment of what she has to do that her dreams are her because she never, has the time or the energy or the place to really think them. Um, and it was, I, I put this in point B. I just wanted to make, I wanted to make a point. I said, the younger's ap- apartment is extremely crowded. It's like a tour. Th- mm-hmm. It's like a two bedroom apartment that has five people in it. And like, you know, yeah. Ruth and Walter sleep in one room, Benita and mama sleep in another. And then Travis sleeps on the couch in the living room. And um, mm-hmm. it, it, it accurately portrays the living conditions of what would have been a working poor, or poor, but working poor because they were employed, black family. Um, I also wonder how it applied to the title in the Hughes poem, how the dreams are deferred because they're almost there's almost literally no room for them to be there. Like yeah, and then she's pregnant. Yeah, so, so that it causes, causes more. Even, but the yeah. other thing is, it's interesting the 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 word explode. If you look at it in a more positive connotation, that the explosion is a force for for good for progress. There's the ending. In that, yes, Walter has lost all of the rest of the money. But when he goes to take the money from Lindner, if he took it, he's doing it in front of his son, like you were saying. And perhaps there's a positive explosion there in that Travis is seeing his father like this for for the first time taking the reins on something and not just kind of being the I've got a bunch of ideas guy because there's something about Walter that is I mean he's an incredibly well written character but you strain to root for him because you like through a lot of this he's always talking a big game 
and he seems to have a lot to say, but you 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 get frustrated in that he's obviously not hitting his potential, but you also wonder if he's kind of also full of it sometimes. Like, you know, he's a real three-dimensional character to me in that you sympathize mm-hmm. for him, but you also get very frustrated with him. Because, like, oh, even absolutely. I'm like, dude, the liquor store thing is never going to work out. And, like, I have all these big ideas and blah, blah, blah. And even the people around him are like, you know, this guy again. Like, you know, they just kind of roll their eyes at all the stuff. And I think the audience does to a certain extent. But at the same time, you feel sympathy for him. And then when she brings out, when he's going to sign this paper, he's going to take this check. And Lena brings out Travis. And she's like, I want you, I want you to do this in front of your son. And he's like... It just it, it hits him finally of like what his role as a man and a father is, and I, I really really appreciate that moment. And for me, that's like there's something about a dream being formulated or something in that moment. It, to me, it's it, you're right. It's hopeful, but it's really really positive. And I think on the positive end, if a positive connotation for that word, exploding, which is might not be what Hughes was going for, but but I think there's also a little bit a little bit there, even though. And we'll, we'll get to this later. Even though the ending of the play is not necessarily a happy ending. And, and Hansberry mm-hmm. herself was like, this is not a happy ending. Um, but I think there is some hope in the ending as opposed to an outright tragedy. So, but let's get a little more into Walter and Ruth. Um, they are very different characters from one another in the, very, in the way they view their situation, especially at the beginning of the play. Walter's got big dreams. He constantly talks about money. But money in the way of constantly talking about, like, getting rich, right? And then um, Ruth seems to be more realistic about their place in things. She, like I said, she's doing a lot of the emotional labor, um, etc. By the end, though, there's they've both changed. Um, how are they, to use a literary, a literature class term, dynamic characters? Ooh. <laughs> well, I think Walter has shaken himself out of the, the the dreaming. I think in that one monologue he has, he talks about how he can – there's like this future open up to him, but he doesn't know what it looks like. And so I think now he's more realistic in what needs to mm-hmm. be done, and I'm – well, no, I won't say that. I think that, yeah, he won't be having any of these these schemes, but maybe be more, you know, how can I um, be a father, be a husband, be a son, and provide for this family. With Ruth, that's interesting. I don't see her as much of a dynamic character so i would like to hear your answer and then i will (laughs) then i'll go off um so for walter i agree with you and i also think that walter also sees um he has more purpose in a sense like I don't know. There's something really real, like, you know, the way he stands up for himself and stuff, or he's not, he's, he's not, you know, he, and I don't want to go down the road of like, oh, he needs to take responsibility for himself because that's also totally like tinged with like, you know, 
racism and things, you know, because we hear that a lot. But there is a fair amount of blaming others that he does in this. And, and you know, and, and there's a truth to that. But he also um, he is also very much um, he's very much a child through a lot of this play. Did you notice Especially around like Mama and with his yeah. sister and his sister and here fool around. Now, that's just the dynamic between siblings sometimes that they'll st- even as adults, they'll pick at each other like that. But mm-hmm. there isn't there. The dynamic between him and his mother is very much as if he was still his her child in that actual sense. And I feel that he has really and she even says like he really came into his own like he really does grow over the course of the thing. So there's the whole idea of taking responsibility and that being more of an adult um, is in there. And that's, that's really, really important. Ruth at the beginning of the play seems to have begrudgingly accepted her lot in life. And by the end of the play, she is a lot more active as wanting out. She sees in the Clyburn Park House purchase, she's finally getting out of this place. And it almost like it's striking how much when she's like, oh, I can't wait. Like, goodbye. I can't wait to get out of this dump. And she says it a couple of times in different ways. I even think she almost surprises herself by realizing how unhappy she was. You know, I think it's there at the beginning, but it's like a little more subtle beneath the surface. And I think as the play goes on, it comes more to the forefront. Um, And uh, especially as she has to come to terms with like, you know, being pregnant and things like, you know, she's, she's, she is a lot more hopeful. She's a lot more, um, active in a sense proactive in a sense by the end of the play as opposed to the way she just kind of does crowd control through the beginning yeah i you know i i guess i can i can see that i also feel like she's almost taken on walter lee's dream persona Mm -hmm. now because yes there's this house and so i this house represents like better uh, better circumstances better situation but even she has admitted that in order to pay for this house she's going to have to take on extra mm-hmm. jobs in order to do all this and uh, the neighborhood itself I, I think i don't know if they've truly reconciled what that's going to mean because there's probably going to be some violence and, and intimidation from the white mm-hmm. neighbors so i feel like the situation is almost worse and she's got this like dreamer like oh you know this house represents everything that we mm-hmm. could be and it's like well now so i yeah i guess i can see what you're saying but i also feel like I'm worried. I'm, I'm oh, worried. I'm very, very worried about them by the end of the play because, yeah. especially since what we've read, you know, the background that we've done, you know, with with the way these families like this sure. were often chased out of their homes. But even with Walter and especially her, there's a practical determination with both of them at the end, and not a just kind of a hope that everything will work out. Like she's like, I will strap this baby to my back and make like there there is a real fire there that it, it was always there, but it is to the forefront in a way that um and I think Walter helped her get it there 
or she helped Walter get it there as well. I feel like I said that there's something more the tangibility of having this place has really lit something in both of them by the end. And um, I'm very, very worried because they are up against a lot, but I feel they have way more strength to do it than they did at the very beginning of the play. So let's talk about the deal though, because this is the thing that kind of like is the, so, so mama buys the house and everything, blah, blah, blah. But the whole deal with the liquor store, this is the thing that Walter, like from the beginning of the play has been talking about. And he's been trying, he tries to convince mama to give him the money instead of what she does with it. Um, because he's like, you know, I got this idea in the liquor store. And she, first of all, she doesn't like the whole idea. She's just, um, she, she's not big on the drink, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and is there a significance to the fact that it's for a liquor store? Is there a significance here the way that they have to spread bribes around? Because that's what the 6500 was for. It wasn't to put the investment in. It was to bribe a bunch of people for permits and stuff. And so is there significance there in a literary way as well as a societal context sort of way? Well, unfortunately, Walter Lee has a drinking problem. Yes. I don't I don't know if that has anything to do with that he wants a liquor store. I think he thinks it's quick cash, everyone wants booze. Um I uh the bribing. So mainly the bribing is what you're asking uh, about. A little bit I of feel both, like yeah. a lot of it is because they're I assume three yes. black men wanting to start a business. And so they're going to need to grease palms because people aren't going to help out, give liquor licenses, do everything by the book as they would with white store mm-hmm. owners. So I think there's certainly race has a great deal to, to play about that um, or past prohibition. So it's not that a literary reason for having it be a liquor store. Uh I don't know. I was just wondering. I think uh, on the on the historical context, the societal context. Yeah, that's what I was going for there. Because you know, we talk about how, and even Mama at one point where she talks, where she buys the house, she's like, you know, they're like, why didn't you go to one of the other neighborhoods where, like, you know, I think you know where black people live? She's like, I can't. You know, that they're charging like twice as much there, and that was part of the problem. Like, you know, the the inequity of housing for different people mm-hmm. you know, of people of color versus white people you know the white houses the white houses were way way cheaper and you know because it was like we're going to discourage black people from moving into these houses so you're right this would be the same way of starting a business you know oh yeah you can start a black you're black you can start a business and everything but like you know you're going to have to pay me under the table a little bit for me to sign that paper turning it over to you and I, it's just again it's just a way of getting that whole idea of a system that is clearly clearly against them that's that's really really important literary i just was wondering it's because of it being liquor because of being of a vice right oh um, yeah and one whether and and you know because it's not because i think george murchison's family is in dry cleaning um or, or something that's very just kind of 
boring. You know, dry cleaning is exactly an exciting business. Um, no offense to anybody who runs a dry cleaner, but um, but no, it, it's it's a very like, oh, your dad runs all those dry cleaning stores, and it's like, yeah, like, oh wow, wow, but you know, wow, he made so much money off of that, and it's just kind of a it's kind of an ordinary business, right? It's like running a deli or something, like you know, yeah, it's just the dry cleaners. Yeah, liquor store though, that's a little bit. I think mafia is in the deli business as far as the TV shows I've seen. Yeah, but um, but the but the but with when it comes to liquor stores, you know, this is a little bit shady, you know. Um, now, granted, we have mm-hmm. ABC stores around here, but like you know, liquor store in the city yeah, that that might have been viewed as shady. So maybe that's what he was going for. That he was going down, uh, and he was. You're right. You said he has a drinking problem. He's he's kind of half drunk through most of this play. There are several yeah. scenes where he has been. He's like in the bottle, and um, uh, and and it's really one of the sources of a lot of his um, various emotional swings too, as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's just something about that that is there's he's going down a path that is not one that is righteous. Um, yeah, and I feel like this is a trope. Mm-hmm. I don't know if. Um, about to say Hansberry, I was right, um, is leaning into that. But this is not the first time that I've had, you know, like a husband or a father, a black husband mm. or father who uses the money basically for drinking purposes. Yeah, that's a good point. Like I'm reading James Baldwin's Go Tout Over uh-huh. on the Mountain and there's a character in there too. So I don't know if this is a trope and she's using, she's just leaning into it. Or if it's just an unfortunate uh, coincidence. I'm I'm not sure, and I don't know if I don't know when Golden Tunnel on the Mountain was published, so I don't know if she had been inspired by books. She knew Baldwin. That was in yeah. So she she and she and Baldwin were contemporaries, so perhaps there is a there is a little bit of a trope here, um, or or perhaps she is also. Um, unfortunately, I, I would do. We would have to do the research into the the rate of alcoholism or something. But perhaps it was part of the part of that was some you know, part period. of the time. But also think about the fact that um, Mama doesn't mention much about her his father drinking. She mentions his father coming in home working working a lot, and then coming home and just being exhausted. And Walter mm-hmm. is almost abusing that as much as he's abusing the bottle. Yeah. And um, uh, and uh, yeah. So there's there's that. And Mama, um, she's this great character, but she's both uplifting and controlling and enabling especially considering her children you know how do we how do we see that it's how much she is um i don't want to say part of the problem is not the right way to phrase it but how how much she contributes to the way both walter and benitha are as opposed as much as she tries to uplift them and help them yeah i think it's it's the two different sides of the same coin. I, I think it's all her expectations and her expectations are coming from her particular generation and how she grew mm. up. So she has these expectations for how her children should act and behave not only from her life experience, but also 
looking at her husband. And so that's positive to a certain extent because she's able to get Walter Lee out of uh, a potential bad situation where he would really just destroy his character and there's no going Mm -hmm. back from that. But also she has these expectations for, I would say specifically Benita, Benny, Benny, isn't that her nickname? Um, just that, you know, the purpose of a woman is to get mm-hmm. married and clearly you should go for the man who has the financial sub- foundation and, and support. And, uh, Benny is clearly <laughs> a feminist. Yeah. I she's, she's I like that about feminist. her. And so that's hard for her to like be pushing, pushing against it. And, and whenever there's any sort of tussle between any, anyone, um, the mom always goes and, and supports, the child somehow so travis you know gets coddled and and um walter lee also gets mm-hmm. coddled so th- there yeah there's some problems there so you wonder if that maybe if her coddling almost i don't know stagnated their independence or their character and so that's how they or well, walter. specifically walter we don't know yet yeah. about travis Yeah, there's a bit of arrested development going on with Walter. Like I said, he's still very much a child, especially around uh, Lena. And it's that moment in the end where she not only first she's like, you you," when he's going to take the money, she's like, you need to do this in front of your son and see what your son needs to see what his father is doing. But then when he turns around, he's like, I'm not doing this. And Linda goes to her. She's like, I can't. you You heard the man. And she lets him take the lead at the end in a way that is what she's secretly always wanted to do. Like, she's she's been looking for him to do that, and yet she never really seemed to find the way to do it um, in a way that actually helped. Because the kids both see her as somebody who's kind of in the way, even though they love her very much. Um, and it's almost like this act at the end is, is a better thing than telling her son that, hey, you need to step up and such. Yeah, but it was very situational mm-hmm. because you could say step up and that means taking $6,500 and giving it to Yeah, Lily. that's true. That's true. So it's only step up. It only works positively in certain circumstances. Well, does he have to lose the money in order to um, – in order to find himself. Um, he probably needed to hit rock bottom somehow. Is this like somehow. a hero's journey for him in a sense? <gasps> you know, oh like, because the hero goes through that. Yeah. He hit, the hero bottoms out and then eventually kind of rises again. So is that a sort of um, hero's journey? Well, the unfortunate thing is that it's not just his, though, because that losing that money affects everybody. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it would have been like had the venture gone forward and the venture failed. I don't know if it would just been this terrible cycle and he would have come up with excuses for why I would have or that would have been an OK. It hit bottom because that was the money that his mother gave him specifically for that venture. And so, like, that failed. Maybe that could be his rock bottom. But this is everybody's rock bottom. Yeah. So, But I do think he needed to be stripped away of everything, which mm-hmm. is really un- unfortunate for him to get shaken out of where he yeah. is. I'm going to give a 
writer explanation for why he does why why it falls apart is that in the time frame of the play because it would take a long time for the deal to fall apart if they went through with it so we're talking maybe months or something or weeks or months or whatever Mm -hmm. and the play does not necessarily afford that time so having having it go like this where willie makes off with everybody's money just for the expediency of the plot works out better Mm. so but i think it would have been a similar effect because the plot plot demanded demanded it it, yeah but i think it would have had a similar effect if it happened gradually over time and that they would he would have lost um, not just what he had, but he would have lost a lot else in terms of the family, and the family might have lost the house. To, you know, like the, it would have it would have been just as bad. So Lindner, because we're gonna get to Benita, we're gonna get to Benita and George in a, in a moment. But I want to talk about the deal. Okay. Lindner comes in, and like we said, there was a uh, there were practices like this that actually did happen, where the HOA got together because they had a covenant to keep out black families. They raised mm-hmm. money, and they tried to buy them off. Um, sometimes real estate agents would not show certain areas to black people because they were literally redlined on a map. Um, In this case, we have the former, where Lindner shows up hat in hand, saying basically very nicely. And again, he's he's always polite, even when he is flustered. And that's really important as well. Um, Because uh, there's another book about racism that comes out the year year or two after this which is To Kill a Mockingbird and the the Mm. white, the conflict between black and white people is a lot nastier in that book. There's a a group of white people going up to as a lynch mob, there is uh, the use of the N-word in that particular you know, as, as a racial epithet there are, you know, and you have like the Yules, et cetera, et cetera. This is not that the white people mentioned here are either the people that they work for. So that, so this whole idea of like servitude is definitely in here. And then Lindner comes in and he is very professional. He's very polite. Even in his most flustered moments, he's it's subtle. You know, we know what's going on and they know what's going on, but it's written in a way that is it's almost scarier. No, it's not scarier than 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 a lich bot, but because that that's terrible. But it's it's just as scary because of the mm-hmm. way it is so subtle and the way it is so acceptable that people would have behaved that way. Mm-hmm. It's a suspense and almost the, the threat, the unspoken threat of yeah. what could be. Yeah. And um, I, I question I, I say it's so religious symbolism time. Um, Lindner is okay. the devil. The offer is being for Walter's soul or the family's soul, mm. and Walter is a Christ figure. And I say the Christ figure thing because um, if you watch the Portier version of the film, the scene where Mama is beating him about the head and Act Two ends. There's the way it's staged is the image before we fade to black is very close to like a Pieta type of image. She's over him and he's kind of down on the floor. It's 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 almost meant to evoke that in some way. And I used to use this as a question in class, like, is he a Christ figure? So is Lindner the devil? 
is the offer for his soul as Walter Christ figure. Um, two out of three ain't bad. I mean, what's your take on this? Wow, what a question. I've, I've never thought it, so let me ponder for a moment. I'll ponder out loud. So when I think of a Christ figure, not they don't necessarily have to be morally, like completely morally mm-hmm. upright. But, you know, are they suffering for the whole somehow? And will there be a greater sacrifice made? So he's def- he definitely makes a sacrifice. There's suffering, but I would almost say it's only suffering on his half. He doesn't necessarily suffer for other mm-hmm. people, at least when he's constantly asking about money. He does want to better the family, but it seems very much like, you know, so I can rise mm-hmm. above uh, the station that I've been placed in. Uh, and then, yeah, is Lidner, ooh, is he the devil? Uh, ooh. <laughs> Golly. Uh, we could say yes. You know, he could certainly be, you know, a stand-in for white sin mm-hmm. in general and just what we have to atone for, we as in white Americans. Um, yes, I'm not, you know, this is like a yes question mark. I'm not strongly inclined to say yes or strongly inclined to say no. So I'd love to hear your opinion. I'm on the fence of the Christ figure thing. I, I think it's, I think it's a variation on it. Maybe I think there's, there's some sort of strength that comes out of this that he can combat that sort of sin or evil in it. Um, that he's working through something. So I, I don't know if it's one for one. But the other two I'm a little stronger on. I really do think that him taking the offer at the end would have been selling his soul. And because of all that represented, if you really think of it, if you really think of just this giving in to this oppressive body and and going along with it and taking the money is it just and, and how just small that would have made him feel or look um how desperate he was at the time and Linder being so nice is a great portrayal of the way the devil can work right you know the the devil isn't necessarily mm-hmm screaming and yelling at you the devil tempts you very the devil tempts you with what you want you know yeah going back to even even like old you know old testament like your typical classic examples of it the devil is the devil is slick you know and and i i see that here i see that sort of imagery of you know this is they 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 already have taken so much they're going to take what you have left and and it's your manhood it's your soul and it's the soul of the family essentially you are you are essentially entering into a faustian bargain the the shame that will be your life after taking this and and what you are doing to your son and what you are doing to your family is not worth any justification you have to be taking that money and that's why it's so important that he rejects the offer at the end yeah i i again you know i totally hear what you're saying i also think it's just so hard for me to be like so 
you know, this would have condemned him almost uh, um, in choosing this because I think about where this play leads, where act four mm-hmm. <laughs> leads. And I'm thinking, well, if they took the money, which actually would have been bad anyways, because he would have been lying about it because they almost weren't going to move in. Um, he's saving his family potentially from violence and terror. And uh, we know that uh, the mother and the wife are going to have to take on extra duties. So is everything is the only thing that he's sacrificing in choosing to take the money pride? No, because there's a principle involved here. It's disgusting to take that money. It it. It's it's everything about the control that these people have. It's admitting his second class citizenry. It's admitting no, or or maybe he he acknowledges, it, but it, there's an there's a level of acceptance to that. That if he had taken the money, that like it's like a full acceptance, and there's just because the offer itself is smarmy. And and I just yeah mm-hmm. I I don't I understand the practicality of it, and if you look at it from that lens, yeah, I understand that, but I can never accept that because I'm just like no you you cannot because you cannot take that and and I think this speaks to something about masculinity as well you know the fact that he was he was not his own man until the end of the play. Because the money was never his. That's the other thing. It's his father's money. And he, right. again, it's like the sh- like what he is doing to the family and what he is doing to the memory of his father, his father who worked. And, and like the generations that Lena mentions of like, you know, uh, she mentions like, you know, enslaved people and sharecroppers and things like that. It's like, you know, we come all this way for you to do that. We survived so much of this oppression for you to take the money and accept the oppression. It's just, it's, that's, that's where I think that he makes the right decision. Despite the struggle ahead. So, yeah. I would like, I have two follow up. One is, I think my issue is I keep thinking about post play mm-hmm. and I think I, I shouldn't do that. And so that's why if I just look at where they are at that ending and at that moment, I think it's easier to do that. And then could I relate it to something and you tell me like, sure. yeah, that makes sense. Um, someone, let me think here because I don't want to be offensive. Um, Maybe something happening in the workplace, and instead of reporting it, somebody which could help other people if they reported it, they take uh, hush money and sign an NDA. I think it's very similar. Um, if we're looking okay. like, let's say um, – now, but I'm not going to shame anybody who was forced into that situation. Let's say – let's say let's, no, let, let's look no, at something as – No, but high. I'm just like, is that kind of uh, similar to what the feel I, I would think, be? Maybe? I think – um, yes. Um, so like, so, and in some cases people are forced or bullied into that. Um, Absolutely. we, we see yep. that if you've, I mean, like the, uh, um, Roman Farrow, uh, Ronan Farrow outlines that in Catch and Kill, which is about his investigation to the Harvey Weinstein, um, thing and how many people really did mm. do that because of the, again, 
that it is a good example of oppressive power in a system. You know, and in this mm-hmm. case, he, you know, in this case, you know, in that case, um, a lot of women did that, or when they wouldn't, they were that they did face those consequences. But I, so I think it's a good. I don't think it's a false equivalence. Um, okay. I also think of them post-play in a way that I worry and I wonder, but I yeah. don't. Oh yeah walk away thinking they made the wrong decision. Like, I'm rooting for them, but... And this can kind of go into question. one of the question, other questions I had. Um, that Nemiroff mentions this in the intro. One of the most important parts of the conversations... Um, sorry, that's the wrong question. Uh... Linder mentioned this. Uh, it's Nimrov mentioned this. He says an, a misperception of the play is that it's gentle, um, which I wonder is if it comes from. <laughs> it's it's in that? the it's in the introduction, and I'd have to find it. No, I mean who? Um, who audiences, says that? <laughs> what yeah, audiences, um, etc. Oh, um, and uh, the. Um, I think one of the things is that uh, because because and I th- honestly I think it's a little bit of a misogynist way of thinking of the play because it is written by a woman. Um, so, uh, but you know, so that's why one of the reasons I think my misperception might exist. But it has a slightly upbeat or hopeful tone in its conclusion. But I don't. But it. I'm questioning like how does this not actually have a happy ending and I think like you know we must acknowledge that at least is the point I was making but um, the the here's the um, paragraph I, I grabbed this from essentially he says and perhaps this is from the intro and perhaps the most ironical of all to the playwright who had herself as a child been almost killed in such a real life story um, which is referenced in to be young gifted and black according to the footnotes the climax of the play became pure and simple a happy ending, despite the fact that it leaves the youngers on the brink of what will surely be in their new home, at best, a nightmare of uncertainty. If he thinks that's a happy ending, said Hansbury in an interview, I invite him to come live in one of the communities where the youngers are going. Suds so Turkle interviewed her back on American Theater, and, uh, um, which is not even to mention the fact that the little house in a blue-collar neighborhood, hardly suburbia as some have imagined, is hardly the answer to the deeper needs and inequities of race and class and sex that Walter and Benita have articulated. So there's a misperception that Imroff is saying that this is a happy ending because they're, they're going to ride off into the sunset, right. And, you know, have the picket fence mm-hmm. and everything, but it's not the reality that they're entering into is very, very hard. And what is the color of the person who made the comment? Um, I think ending? it's just it, in general. I think it's I think it is white audiences. White audiences apparently. Okay. Uh, white audiences apparently because you have to. The, one of the things we do have to remember is a lot of the Broadway audience back in the 1950s was white, and yeah. a white audience. Yeah, they, they could, could afford it. You know, and and white audiences very much like almost whitewashed this play or their views of them. So in okay. the introduction, he also quotes Ozzy Davis saying. Uh, mentioning that a lot of audiences reacted to the play that noting that the characters were just like any other family. And um, he says, 
One of the biggest. Uh, this is from Ozzy. This is from. This is a quote from Ozzy Davis. Uh, one of the biggest selling points about Raisin filling the grapevine, writing the word of mouth, laying the foundation for its wide, wide acceptance, was how much the younger family was just like any other American family. Some were ecstatic to find that quote. It didn't really have to be about Negroes at all. It was rather a walking, talking, living demonstration of our mythic conviction that underneath all us Americans. Color ain't got nothing to do with it, and pretty much alike. People are just people, whoever they are, and all they want is a chance to be like other people. This uncritical assumption, sentimentally held by the audience, powerly, powerfully fixed in the character of the powerful mother, with whom everybody could identify immediately and completely, made any other questions about the youngers and what living in the slums of Southside Chicago had done to them not only irrelevant and impertinent, but also disloyal, because everybody who walked in the theater saw in Lena Younger his own great American mama, and that was decisive. And that was, uh, again, that's a that's a quote by Ozzie Davis, who played Walter in, in broad, on Broadway after Sidney Poitier left the role. Um... So, like, how do we? And so it's basically erasing the blackness from the from the play. And how do we mm-hmm. avoid that? Like, if we're if we're giving this to somebody, if we're reading this, if we are teaching this, because I can see that very well happening. You know, a teacher coming yeah. into a white class I mean, and saying, like, you know, how can we identify with these people, and essentially erasing everything that's black about them. Yeah, potentially, and this could backfire, so I'll give you two answers. One is you could do a thought experiment of how would this play change if were white, because I think that certain scenes would Mm. not work. Um, In particular, the man from the HOA probably wouldn't come, um, unless he, I guess, didn't want, quote-unquote, white trash in the neighborhood, and that's what they're trying to get rid of. I think that wouldn't work. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is to like really, I think, focus on mm-hmm. race to focus that. I mean, this is a black story, so I feel like it's disrespectful yeah. to, to, to pretend to be colorblind while reading it because they are going to encounter slash they are encountering things that only black Americans at that time were encountering. And so to to go through, so I think to give context, like really, you know, as a teacher, I think the responsibility, if the history book is not doing it, to give background at on the time and what this stuff is, redlining, blockbusting, mm-hmm. um, white flight, yeah. that kind of stuff. So I think to really hone in, which makes people uncomfortable. They don't like to talk about race and they get yeah. freaked out about it. But, I mean, I think you have to zone in on it because – like I said, I was, it bears repeating. It would be disrespectful to this play to just make it colorblind and like, oh, we can switch it up. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. No. And I think I think we're within every right to feel good on some level about the ending because he died. You know, I still think he makes the right decision, but also ignore that acknowledgement of the. The, the situation they're entering into and then pulling from that historical context like we were doing when during the historical context portion of the episode here of mm-hmm. like what you saw through Robert Moses in the color and in, in, in places like the color of law you know, books like the color of law and how much fight they would have to endure through this um, yeah. it's it will exhaust the people but that's the point 
you know, you're right. I think you had a great yeah. point. Like people don't like to, to talk about this and they get uncomfortable. And uh, many of them react in a knee jerk sort of way that especially if they if they uh, that they feel somehow attacked you know what i mean you, oh, you, you, yeah. you, we call it yeah, white the, fragility. The, the whole, <laughs> that whole idea of like you know um i believe that the phrase this is where the phrase cancel culture would come in i hate that freaking phrase but oh. but you know that that whole idea that all of a sudden like you know well you know you're making us feel bad for doing this is like no that's not the point um you know it, it's acknowledging this history and also and like i said like we were saying about the holocaust and night tying it to modern day and seeing where this is still going on and how this is still happening and how this still resonates that's the other mistake you could make is keeping this entirely within its historical context in this sort of way of like oh this was back during segregation and 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 that doesn't exist anymore and therefore that diminishes this because we've gotten past this and everybody's the same and it's like no you know you know like if 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 we had gotten completely past this and everything is okay you know there would be many people who would still be alive you know from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd to Breonna Taylor, Michael, uh, not Michael Ferguson, uh, the kid, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, you know, like uh, just the, the people again, just, yeah, it's not yeah. Really. It just like, and, people and, need to realize and, that we're not in a yeah, exactly. so, so, post-racial society. So as it's teachers, ongoing. we bring that in and we extend, we, yeah. we have them think about the youngers beyond the end of the play. We, like you were saying, act four, we have them think about Act 4 and Act 5, and we have them look into the struggle they would have gone through. Mm-hmm. Because with a really good play, you do ask, or a really good movie, or a really good book, that where the characters kind of continue on after, you do wonder what happened, right? You don't necessarily yeah. want to see the sequel, but you yeah. wonder about the sequel. That's that's awesome. I, I love that. I love coming up with that wondering about. I wonder what happened and 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 but not getting the sequel because you get to you get to work through it in your mind. Well, let's have the students work through this in their minds and let's have them work through it through good research and good sources and really learning about history. This is a really good gateway text into these issues that resonate today. So, Absolutely. I'm sorry. I was getting totally luxury there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I think this is the reason why, like, this is certainly an educational mm-hmm. text. And I was just thinking back then to white audiences that they would either not care or be really ignorant, I think, on w- with yeah. what was going on with their black neighbors. So that's probably why they thought it was. Oh, look at that happy ending. They're going to go into a nice little neighborhood. (laughs) Okay. But now because we're, you know, more Mm well-read and we've had our racial awakenings, we understand really what that is. Yeah. Or that that other thing of like, oh, this isn't even about black people at all. You know, like, and and that that is the other thing. It's erasing the blackness. It's the whole, the whole, I understand that you want to find something in common with the characters, but characters Mm -hmm. do not exist for you to identify with them all the time. And yeah. um, that is something I get across, try to get across to students all the time. Like, because, you know, that's one of those things I always hear. Well, I can't identify with them, so I'm not going to read this. It's like, I get that. Like, I don't identify with Odysseus either. But 
<laughs> no, I or I don't identify. Like I remember, I remember reading. God, this kid was obnoxious. Um, I remember reading Alice Walker's essay, "Beauty When the Other Dancer Is Herself." It's one of my favorite essays of all time. And I said, so okay, so how can we relate to this character, this person? And this one kid, well, I'm not a black woman. And he said it in a real obnoxious way, right? This kid was a really obnoxious jerk. And I said, and I finally started asking the question the same way, a different way. I said, how could you relate to it? Or, or how could somebody relate to this? Because I looked at him, I said, well, you're not. But you want to see what somebody else's experience is. That's why we're reading this. And I tried to do it without sounding all mad and like being like, F you. But it is. I do ask that question. Or like, well, if you can't relate to it, how can somebody relate to this? What is the experience that we're seeing? Like, so it, in other words, white person, it's not about you. And it's not about your mama. And it's not about your family. It's about somebody else's experience. And they're asking you to see a window into their experience so that you understand these things better. But again, the selfishness of an mm -hmm. audience tends to be, and we still see that. The other thing we see nowadays too, and we've been seeing it for decades, and, and this is something that I think we have to watch out for too, is uh, another uh, example would be like the appropriation that goes on with black culture into white culture where people will adopt slang words and images and things like that. Um, in a way that is, uh, you know what I mean? And, and it's something else. That's another thing you could explore through by looking at the way the audience has reacted to this. You could talk about mm -hmm. um, culture. And speaking of culture, let's talk about Benita. I was just actually about to say, yeah. like, Benita is a character that no white person yeah, can yeah. portray. Oh, it wouldn't no, make not sense at all. At all. So uh, there's um, there's two questions I had. First, there's a conflict of culture between George and Joseph, between George Murchison and Joseph Hosseini. Yeah. <laughs> George Murchison, the, the the George Murchison, in a sense, and I don't mean this in the pejorative, is kind of a Carlton Banks from the Fresh Prince. No, oh, he's, he's just a very wealthy. Now Carlton was often like Will used to make fun of him for being a white guy but um but he's just kind of the the rich preppy he's a rich preppy guy and um and and he's very much though of the culture of the time i i thought it was great that you mentioned that she's a feminist because he wants a wife right i got that impression from him didn't you like he wants, oh, he a, wants wife. a wife he wants, yeah, but absolutely. he wants a wife in the sense that like every wife in the 50s was a wife right um, she's not going to be a doctor <laughs> if she marries him. Joseph Asagai is much different, and he's he is from you know being from Nigeria, and it's this is all about your your heritage and things like that. So she's like caught in the middle of this, right? Um, yeah. Does she have her own agency in this play? Is that one of the issues mm -hmm. underlying her character? I think her agency is tied to being a doctor mm -hmm. because that's all her her dream and I really love that monologue she had which was really sad given the circumstances but why she wanted to be a doctor I think it was talking about a young they used to sled down that the uh, hill and and 
the one boy didn't stop and he hit a streetlight. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, she saw everything and, and he came back and was all stitched up and she's like, I want to be a part of that, you know, helping to heal. So I, I feel like that's the one thing that she has for herself um, because she pushes back against both George and Asagai, but I feel like she pushes more against George and part of the reason is also I think that her family is so like yeah you should marry him but with Asagai he's still like putting you know these ideas into her head and to a certain extent I think they're positive you know reclaim your heritage kind of thing but also it's being prompted prompted by a man so um, I think her agency comes from the doctor and also really shedding societal slash her family's expectations of what a woman's role is Mm -hmm. in the world and being a husband. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, yeah, it's really like her character morphs or molds depending on which man she is with. So I feel like you almost see her agency most when she's with the women, when she's with Ruth and Mm -hmm. her mother. But otherwise, when there are other people, she has to constantly defend herself or, you know, she has to change so she's not embarrassed. All that yeah, stuff. she is um, when she is the most forceful and she is the most she's pushing back on her brother. You know, when when he comes in and she's like, there's the entrepreneur, she's like really mad at him and uh, for, for obvious reasons. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. She's often defending herself to Asagai, um, who is. Got some great points, but at the same time is also a little bit myopic in the way he sees things. Because I always pointed out the irony mm-hmm. of the fact that he they're listening. There's one scene where he walks in um, and uh, Ruth's listening to some blues. And in, in the course of the conversation, I don't have an exact quote because I, I looked for it. And I, was, I know he, he, he refers to the music as assimilationist. And mm-hmm. the irony is that the blues... And and you know jazz as well are two like really purely f- black form forms of black music that you know originated you know like the the people who originated this were African American you know they were you know people like Robert Johnson and Billie Holiday and like you know there was there was jazz and Robert Johnson and the blues and things like that like you know so this is a this is an African American form of music and it's interesting to hear it called assimilation assimilationist when it's part of the culture so that particular culture class through those lines is really interesting. Um, and I wondered if there was a correct culture for her or if she needs to find it for herself. And I think I think you're you're articulating it really, really well. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> but no, because I, I, I like it. Was, and it was in this reading that I really liked her character more than I'd ever had. And I never disliked the character. I just don't think I think I always looked at this as sort of a subplot that I didn't really pay much attention to because I was always focused on the whole thing with Lindner and the money and the and and Walter. But this plot with Joseph and and George and and Benita it's it's fascinating because it's feminist but it's also about um conflicting with culture and heritage and a heritage that you don't necessarily understand or know because of the way that the heritage you know is of what mama says you know six generations in america and that goes back to you know 
slavery like you know we don't know anything we don't know a lot but like she even admits like she doesn't really she's learning about this right now so it's just kind of interesting about like you know i was wondering is there is there a correct is she searching for the mean between these two things is she is that where the whole of her is going to be found somewhere between these two it's hard to answer the question because neither of us are black i mean that's the other thing like it's 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 I don't yeah. I don't I don't want to say that we have a definitive answer here, but I think it's a good question to ask. Yeah, I hope so. I think they're both extremes. I mean, I mm-hmm. personally, my life was changed when I went to Kenya, so I feel like that could really be good for her. But also, I don't want her to go just because a man is saying, "Hey, yeah. you should come and do this. You should come with me," because the the unspoken thing but heavily implied is that she's going to be marrying yeah. him like she'll be going to nigeria and she'll become his wife while over there so mm, she's yeah i hope she finds a middle ground i just don't know how in in terms of i wish she could go to nigeria and just be yeah. on her own and do this medical stuff because yeah i i feel like if she can still per- pursue her her dream of being a doctor, then she yeah. would really, I think, yeah, come into it's like own. you want him to go with her, but on the same level, you want him to re- her to reject both of them and do her own set on her own thing as well. You know, because of the fact that she yes. has yep. these ends, she's very smart and she's in college to become a doctor, which um, is, and it's 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 focused on. And maybe maybe that's and maybe that's one of the, the the personality flaws of Walter is that he feels, ironically, beneath his sister. Yeah, see what I did there? Um, I do because <laughs> she really does have what it takes to become a doctor, and yeah. he's and and he's always that's why he's he's lamenting his his lot in life because his baby sister has surpassed him you know and and he's feeling he probably feels emasculated by that too um and there's nothing wrong with it but i'm just saying like within the context of this he he there there's a lot of emasculation that he feels in various levels whether it's from his father his mother or his sister and even his wife Mm -hmm. and um and i think maybe the um the uh, the fact that his wife was considering terminating the pregnancy also makes him feel a little more emasculated as well. She wasn't even going to tell yeah. him about it. I mean, what do you what do you get from that? About the the yeah, potential yeah. abortion. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into a debate on whether or not Golly. abortion is right. I don't know I just, if there's a metaphor there with like aborting yeah. dreams as well too. Um, not telling him about yeah, it. She, I I get the impression that she was just going to take care of it and he would n- never been the oh wiser. yeah i i did too i mean i i think she would have gone through with it had she not had the slip of the mm-hmm. tongue where she said oh i saw her or something and then the mom caught on was like that doctor is a man who did you see um i think maybe well i think there's definitely shame attached mm-hmm. to it for sure um, and, you know, being, uh, I, I mean, especially, sorry, let me, cause that sounds really bad. Um, I think de- definitely back then when there weren't really any laws to protect women, there was a lot of, sh- I mean, uh, she was being all secretive for a reason. I think also 
just as a mother who has a child, um, what is it saying that you can't have another one and raise them? Um, and so maybe she feels like holding, keeping this secret would also reduce the shame of her husband mm. because he already feels bad about their particular situation to a certain extent and, and doesn't seem to be going anywhere uh, with his dreams. And so to add another thing like, you know, you can't provide for us or you're having trouble providing for us. Your dreams don't provide for us. And so I had to have an abortion because mm. of that. So I think it is to protect. I almost would say like, oh, it's because she knows the history of the family. But I think that really does just come from the mother that she, because she has that speech about, you know, where have we come that, you know, where wasn't it this one about taking care of being a father yeah. and having children and taking care of the children. Yeah, because that she had that huge reference to her husband and Ultrawee's father. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that, that yeah, I think that's, that's really well put. I have a couple of just, uh, one point I do want to go back to Walter, uh, not Walter, uh, Benita and Asagai. Um, there's also a commentary, and just, just in the matter, just in the interest of time, I'll just touch upon it. Um, he does, in the argument he has with her in the last act, talk about um, his own struggles against colonialism. So mm -hmm. her going with him is is just as dangerous in that sense or uncertain oh, yeah. as That's them true. heading yep. off into Clyburn Park. Um, the other one is just that last question I have, like, you know, one of the last questions I have is I think one of the most important parts of the conversation is with, is with Linda. And then in, in prepping for the last visit from Linda is the fact that the youngers are six generations in America. Um, it comes up a couple of times. The irony is that they're in America and in America where people are trying to say, well, we don't, you know, you don't have any right to be here, even though we brought you over here. Like, you know, there's just the irony yeah. in a situation like this is, is not lost on me, but there's also just to kind of come back around. Mama says, son, I come from five generations of people who was slaves and sharecroppers, but ain't nobody in my family never let anybody pay him no money. That was a way of telling us we wasn't fit to walk the earth. We ain't never been that poor. We ain't never been that dead inside. Um, and this is when they're all at their lowest point, because even beneath is like, we're dead now. And, and that's when Walter finally, you know, eventually gets the gumption to, you know, do the right thing there. Um, so just kind of that idea of like, again, just generations of, of all of this and uh, and and what they're facing and, and what all the characters are facing. Again, just kind of coming back to our whole thing about like, you know, how this is so relevant and everything. But what's interesting is that I think we could go on for another like hour and a half. <laughs> I, I yeah yeah there's, there's a, a lot, lot there's a lot to unpack in this play and it's such a. Do you still have questions? Do I still have questions? No, I've I've gone through yeah. all the questions. I just I just oh, okay. I'm just I saying. Like, well, I mean, if no, you want but to I'm just going, Tom. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking as I'm talking. I'm thinking of more. I'm like, oh, we could talk. You like? I I feel like we've. I feel like for a play that is. Not very complicated in its presentation. Mm -hmm. It's a very straightforward play. It is mm -hmm. so layered, and I think we're we're scraping at those layers. 
you have the layer of the basic plot. You have what we were talking about about Vanitha and, and Asagai and, and George, and and you have the whole thing about Walter's masculinity and 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 what this all means to Travis and what this means to Mama and like we just and and, and then the 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 greater context of this and how this is. I think we've I think we've shown over and over how this is relevant to today, even though the play is almost mm-hmm. uh, the play is sixty uh, sixty one years sixty two years old. Um, I think that's the beauty of it. It's such a simple play, and yet at the same time, it's so layered. And we could we could probably dig even deeper into it. Like we could do a whole, you know, this is why you take a couple of weeks to do this play in a class because you just you keep getting at stuff and you keep getting at stuff. So, um, I think I know the answer to my last question: <gasps> Is this required reading? No. Yes, of course. <laughs> I shot you, didn't I? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It is required reading, and I would say, especially oh, yeah. now. Yeah, it's like always. It's basically like I would compare it to the level of necessity uh, as mm-hmm. night. Like it's something that frequently needs to be yes. read, yes. and you need to get your family involved in this and be like, yes. "Hey, this happened." And even though it specifically isn't happening. The, you know, racism has evolved in a different way, and it's still there. So yeah. here, and yeah. it's it's so real too. That's the other thing. The play is very, you know, it's not fantastical, you know, in that sense, and it's not mutants. Um, <laughs> nothing against the. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's very real, yeah. and and it's so it, it yeah. is it is it's an essential piece. It's an essential piece. All right. Uh, we don't have any feedback uh, for this episode. Um, <gasps> I no, can't but I think it. I think part of that is due to the fact that uh, that we've had some feed issues and things like that. And and um, uh, and oh gosh, uh, and only with mine, which is problematic. So, but we will we will uh, so feel free to um, to get back to us at any point. Um, I'm sure that we will have some next month. Uh, but. That leads me into one more question for you. Uh, what are we covering next month? Yes, yeah, so we're continuing our theme that I've created. Uh, we've both created, I suppose, for 2021, which is accidentally representation uh-huh. of um, not white people, basically. And so we are going to be reading the house on mangoes i shouldn't say not white people but basically representation was uh-huh. like that we're being inclusive so we're going to be reading the house on mango street by sandra Cisneros. okay cool all right we'll come back in a month for that and in the meantime do send us some feedback uh by email facebook twitter etc um pass this on um and uh leave reviews and all that and uh, as always thank you very much for listening and take care i don't think i have any peppy <laughs> thing yeah. to say uh except maybe take care of your plants and cut your hair however you yes. want to hashtag feminism and yeah also here's a serious one though love your neighbor for sure and uh actively fight racism yes yes and and learn learn history for what it really is and what's really happening oh my gosh yes yes be active in your education and educating others yeah for sure well good night goodbye
listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, that's two If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.